can be seated. A couple uh, things that I, I try not to do, and as we uh, get ready to start, I'm going to uh, try not to do it today, is I try not to take uh, very, very complex issues and just make them seem overly simple. I like to own that problems are complex, and I try not to talk about things that I haven't studied and I know uh, very little about. Uh, and what I'm about to say would fall into both of those camps. Uh, and that is uh, the Israeli conflict that has, that, that has been on your screen. And the reason, as we're getting ready to start, that I wanted to bring it up is I feel like the Apostle Paul actually hits on this just last Sunday in our text. That he talks about this dividing wall of hostility that grows between human beings. Uh, and eventually ends, ends in conflict. And that one of the things that Jesus came to do was he came to destroy the dividing wall of hostility so that humanity could live in peace with one another, to create a new humanity uh, through his blood on the cross and through the peace that he came to bring. And so when I talk about overly simplistic solutions to very complex problems, please don't hear that in this regard. Jesus is the answer to this. Jesus is the answer. And that's not me saying what a preacher is supposed to say or trying to be overly simple about very complex political problems. It is the truth. Jesus is the answer. He will destroy the dividing wall of hostility that exists between human beings and he will bring peace. And so I do want to pray because several people have asked me about it this morning and I, I've been following it over, overnight too. And I do want to pray. I want to pray that Jesus would come to that region. The other thing I want to say about this is that I think this is an opportunity for us as Americans to look in the mirror and say, is this really what we want our future to be? This growing sense of political hostility, this I'm right, you're wrong, let's go to war, let's do all of this, this growing sense of anger in our country, left unchecked, this is what it becomes. This is what it becomes. And so I think it's a good chance for us as Americans not to make something that's about them about us, we do that enough, right? But for us to take a little bit of a look in the mirror, to pause just for a minute and say, is the political anger that's happening in this country tenable? Now, we may not ever be in a physical war that, like they are, but is a cultural war worth it? Right? Is a relational war worth it? Is, is, is this what we want our future to be? And to say Jesus also came to destroy the dividing wall of hostility in our country as well. And so the dividing wall of hostility uh, within a family or within politics or whatever the case may be, he came to bring peace to those things too. And so I think it's just a good opportunity for us because as you know, in, in my years of life, this has been a growing, growing, this didn't just happen Friday night into Saturday. This has been a growing, growing conflict. And I think it's a good chance for us as Americans just to pause just for a minute and say, is this really what we want? Is this really what we want? When a people go to war with one another politically and relationally and culturally, at some point it ends in this. And is that really what we want? I don't have the answer to that, but I do want to pray. Right? And I want to encourage you to check out Ephesians 2. I preached on it last Sunday, but go ahead and reread it again where he talks about the dividing wall of hostility and how Jesus came to bring peace. So Lord, we thank you for the morning. I want to pray for... Um, people on the other side of the world that are just so unbelievably scared 
and uncertain this morning. Um, I, I don't, I know I'm a preacher and it, it sounds like something I'm supposed to say, but I do believe, Jesus, that you are the answer to this. And so I just want to pray for revival and that people would turn to you and that dividing walls of hostility that we are so good at as people, that dividing walls of hostility would fall and that peace would come and a new, a new humanity would emerge that Paul talks about in Ephesians 2. That a, a, a oneness and a unity as we worship you and know you and follow you. We thank you for what you're, you're going to do through this terrible conflict that you, we, we know you're at work. That you can work through even terrible things that happen. You can work through those to bring about some good. And so we are eager to see what can happen. Right now I want to pray for people in that region that are scared, uncertain, running for their lives, that you would just give them a peace that surpasses understanding in the middle of conflict. We again, we thank you for Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Let's get into Ephesians 3. Um, I grew up, maybe you grew up this way too, but I grew up with a mother that loved mysteries. Um, I hardly ever remember her uh, without an Agatha Christie novel in her hand, right? By, by her bed, just reading that stuff regularly. We watched Murder, She Wrote. Um, almost every week, anyone else watch Murder, She Wrote? Um, Matlock, all of these shows, and Columbo. My mom, my, my kids will walk in and they see Columbo's and I'm like, oh, for the love. You know, Ly- Lila walked in and she's like, do you have to be watching this right now? And, and I don't have to, I want to, right? Uh, and, and so I just grew up in that environment with lots and lots of mysteries. And, and someday my kids will say the same thing about me, that they hardly ever saw me without a James Patterson book or a Harlan Coben book or listening to a podcast or watching mystery shows on TV. Cheryl and I are watching... Um, Uh, we've departed from that. We're watching a medical drama show right now that I am deeply ashamed by. But um, uh, but we've given an entire summer to it at this point, and there's like, you know, 12 seasons left, and you can probably figure out which one I'm talking about. But uh, we, we, we love mysteries. We, we just do. And mysteries are embedded into our culture. Uh, and this is actually, there's mystery involved in the gospel message, as Paul is going to share. Uh, there's mystery as to what God was doing in the Old Testament. But even now, we live with a little bit of mystery. When, when you hear about things like that are, that are happening in Israel, when you see things unfolding, sometimes you wonder, God, what are you doing? How are you at work? What are you trying to accomplish? And so mystery is embedded in it. I like what one theologian wrote. Theology is best understood as a mystery discerning enterprise rather than a problem solving one. So a lot of times when we come to church, we want like, give me three steps to solve this problem. Give me four steps to solve this problem. And sometimes with God, there's just a little more mystery involved in it than that. To solve a problem is to make all the puzzles go away, which is not the kind of resolution that we ought to expect as a matter of course in theological exploration, but we can hope to succeed in knowing more precisely and more clearly what the mystery is, and this can be an important game. So essentially what he's saying is that in our American problem-solving minds, let's not lose sight of mystery, of what God is doing, and learning to trust him in the midst of mystery. A lot of times we're like, God, just tell me what to do, tell me where to go, tell me what what I need to accomplish, solve the mystery, and sometimes the gospel writers want us to stand back and enjoy the mystery a little bit. Don't feel like you have to skip to the end of the book, right? It's very tempting to do that. Believe me, I know. 
But, but we're not going to skip to the end of the book. We're going to savor the mystery a little bit and in terms of learning to trust God in the midst of it. And so Paul's going to talk to us a little bit about mystery today. Let me show you this. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. All right, we're going to talk a lot about that line. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the people of other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. The mystery is... Excuse me. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the, by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purposes that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in him and through faith that we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings which are for your glory. Now, where Paul is going to start is this idea of Um, affirming the reason for his apostleship. So Paul came into leadership in the church. Paul came into apostleship. He became an apostle under controversial circumstances. And you can understand why, because before Paul was Paul, he was a guy named Saul. His name changed, and he was a guy named Saul, and he persecuted the church. So he, he believed zealously in Judaism, and he viewed Christianity in his younger years as a threat, and so he persecuted the church. He imprisoned people. He killed those that belonged, according to the book of Acts, to the way, right? The way is what the early followers of Jesus were called. And so we've talked about this before, but you can imagine Paul walking into a church for the first time, in, into a gathering of people, and he's like, all right, I'm here to worship with you folks. Where where do I sit? I got a place where you can sit, Paul, right? He'd have an unbelievable reaction from the people in these small local churches. Like, man, that guy, because it's not even like a room this size. You know, they were meeting a lot of times in house churches. And it's like that guy sitting across the room, he killed my cousin, or he imprisoned my nephew, or he's why we're hiding in fear. I don't really want him here. I don't really want him worshiping in this place. I don't really want him in this room. And so Paul, in a couple different places in the New Testament, Paul feels the need to kind of lay out his credentials a little bit of why God called him into leadership and why God called him to be an apostle, just like all the other apostles. He's like, I'm just like them. Um, I'm just like them. And, And he felt the need to say, why? And the reason why is he wanted them, the reason why he presses into this so much into his resume, is he wanted them to understand and accept his message of Jesus and his message of grace. Paul felt, and there's so much evidence for this, Paul felt that he was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles, 
to those that were not yet to those that were not born to the nation of Israel and to Paul this was the mystery that God was doing all along that someday God who worked in the Old Testament through Israel that someday the door would open wide through the work of Jesus on the cross and Jews and Gentiles alike would be able to enter into a relationship with God that they were created to have Paul says I am a part of the solving of this mystery that God called me to apostle the Gentiles. God called me to preach to the Gentiles. God called me to bring to them the administration of his grace so that everybody would know Jesus, the gospel, Jesus, it is for everyone. And so he goes through, he talks about what this, what is it that's for everyone? And he talks real briefly, let me walk through these kind of quick, but it's a message of the promises that are fulfilled and found in Jesus. So as you know, uh, the last four years, we were working through the book of Genesis and uh, we were taking it one section of a time, January to Easter. We just finished this last year, but the second section of that series was on Abraham. And you remember, I shared this text with you last week, but let me share it again. When God comes to Abraham and says, leave your country, your people, your father's household, here's how it plays out. The Lord had said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And as the story of the Old Testament unfolds, all of this comes true. Abraham's name is great, right? You've heard of Abraham, right? Your kids have heard of Abraham. I don't know, care if they go to church or not. They've heard of Abraham. His name is great. He became a great nation. Ultimately, I believe it is in the New Testament through Jesus that this promise is ultimately fulfilled and the entire world is blessed through the work of Jesus. Blessing is found in him. So it's a message of promise that the whole world's going to be blessed. That promise happens, but it's also a message of grace. The message about Jesus is the message of how our sins are forgiven and how we are made right with God, that we were our sin, we were trouble. Our sin was disrupting and separating us from God. Our, our, our sin was separating us from one another. Our, our sin was, we were hurting ourselves with, with, with our sin. I, I often think about that nobody has made more poor decisions for me than me. Right? I, I like to blame other people, but a lot of times it's just me and my own decisions and my own sin. He said, so sin was creating massive problems for us. And he says, Jesus came and he offered us a way to be forgiven. It's a message of wisdom. We talk about this a lot, but salvation and grace are not the only things Jesus came to do. Jesus came so that we could know the wisdom of God. He was fully God and he was also fully human. And so Jesus is able to teach us in a way that is different than any other person. He is able to teach us what the wise, good, and upright life looks like. So if you ever wanna know what it means to be fully human, what it looks like to be a full-on human being, you can study Jesus and, and look to him. Our culture has a tendency to look at celebrities, right? The biggest celebrity in the world right now, I believe, is probably Taylor Swift. <laughs> I would caution you about finding wisdom in that lane. Um, but he says, we look to Jesus for wisdom. It's a message of freedom. So in the past, 
before Jesus. There was a lot of tradition and expectation about how a person could have their sins forgiven in the Old Testament. A lot of regulation. One of them was in the Old Testament, the high priest would go into the most holy place. You know what they would do? They would tie a rope around him in case he didn't do it exactly right and he died in there and they could pull him out and bury him. Right? That's how stringent the, 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 the system was. You had to obey it perfectly. And Jesus steps into the space and he says, hey, let me do that for you. Right? You don't have to come to church anymore with a rope tied around your waist in case you don't do it exactly right. right? And your family then can you know, pull you out and bury you. Right? That, that's not the way it works anymore. Jesus came and he says, let me assume that responsibility. And so he comes and he does it right in a way that we couldn't do it right. And he, he frees us. He makes us free from that. Not free to do whatever we want. That's what a lot of people think the grace message is. Oh, God doesn't care. Do whatever you want. No, no, no. God cares. You're not free to do whatever you want. You're free from the legal and rules-based system of being made right, of feeling like I have to do it exactly right to be right with God. He makes us right. He assumes that responsibility. And when we trust in him now, we are free. Free to know him, free to worship him, free to follow him, free to obey him. That's true freedom. Lastly, it's a message of confidence. You see throughout the Holy Scriptures how holy God is. And when you see how holy he is, all of a sudden you're like, man, I think I thought I was holier than I am. (laughs) In comparison to God, I'm really not that holy. And Jesus, through his grace, and through freedom. He gives us, think about this for a minute, he gives us the ability to approach God with confidence. With confidence. And it's because of his grace. Cheryl and I joke about sometimes with our kids, it's like, you know, I don't know if we've been like too graceful or whatever, but I feel like they should be more afraid of us than they are, right? And, and I'll give you the perfect example of it, all right? Whenever my dad would come home from work, he would take a nap. Almost daily, my dad took a nap. I knew in a million years, I would never have even thought about entering his room to wake him up for any reason other than my impending death. And, and, And that was a possibility where it's like, dad, I've been shot. Can you take me to the hospital? I can't believe you woke me up. Right? What, what on earth were you we, we just were, I would never in a million years wake him up. Almost every Sunday, I'll hear get a little tap on my shoulder, and it's like, hey, I wanted to show you this video game I'm playing. Wake up, see the video game. And I'm like, I, I never would have survived childhood if I'd done that with my dad. And I'm like, they need to, I don't think they're afraid enough of me. And then it's like, well, there is, there is something too, though, of having, of having a grace filled environment. And it just giving people confidence to know it's okay to come in. And that's what Jesus has done for us. That's a terrible example. It makes me sound like a terrible parent. But just, right, but just go with it just for a minute. That he gives us confidence through his grace to enter in. We don't have to be afraid to enter in. We can enter in. Now, we should still have an awe and a respect for him, right? We, we really should but we can enter into his throne room with confidence, knowing that we are forgiven and free and able. And so we, we, we still want to have a posture of worship, but we want to enter into this place ready to worship. How we feel about the songs is somewhat irrelevant to me, honestly. If a song lifts Jesus up, I sing that song because he is worthy of it. 
And I want to enter into this room in confidence, knowing that I can worship my Savior. And so the mystery of Christ, the, the mystery of all of this, of what God was doing the whole time, is that what I just shared with you, this is for everyone. It's for you. Your sins can be forgiven. You can enter with confidence. You can know God in this life and the next. It is for you. Jesus did that for you. And so Paul, who was the apostle to the Gentiles, he wanted to make sure Gentiles, who were not raised Jewish, were not raised with that spiritual background, he, wanted, he knew that they might feel excluded or like they couldn't enter in or they weren't allowed or God would never love them, whatever the case may be. And so Paul hits on grace again and again and again in, in, in his writings to make sure they knew, hey, Gentile, this is for you. It's not just for Israel. It is for you. So worship the Lord your God, like we sang this morning. Worship him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Enter with confidence. Understand you are loved. Understand the gospel and understand that it is most definitely for you, that you have received the Holy Spirit. That's not just for someone else. That's for you. And the Holy Spirit wants to give you joy, hope, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's not for the person next to you only. It is for them, but it's also for you to enjoy and love and give your life to Christ. And Paul understood this maybe better than anyone because of his background. Let me show you what he wrote to Timothy one time. He said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a prosecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy statement that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Look what he says. Of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who do not believe in him and uh, for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul believed part of God's vision for why he was called into apostleship, why he received grace, was so that pe people would know this is for everyone. And so whenever anybody would say in the early days of the church, oh, it's not for me. I've done too much. I've gone too far. There's no way God could ever love me. Whenever they would, whenever they would say that, it's like, really? Have you killed a bunch of Christians? Have you persecuted the church? Have you been violently opposed to Jesus, blaspheming his name? No, I lied on my taxes, right? No, no, right? This Paul's like, no, this was him. This is how he would be described. And here's Paul's message to the early church. If it's for me, it is for you. If it is for me, the worst of all sinners, Paul called himself. If it is for me, it is for you. So if you kind of walked into this room today with a limp and you're like, oh, God could never, you don't know what I've done, Steve. God could never love me. He could never accept me. I would never be welcomed in. Paul begs to differ. Paul would say, no, Paul wants to have a one-off with you about who's the worst, right? And Paul's like, I feel like I am the worst. So Paul, Paul's going to win that argument. And he says, the gospel of Jesus 
was even for me. And so sometimes when we come in this room, guys, we gotta drop our shame and our guilt a bit and receive grace. So some of you, Jesus stopped beating up on you a long time ago through the cross, but you won't stop. You won't stop. And, and it's time to accept his grace and accept his mercy and accept his new life. So I love Paul's description of his life in Ephesians 3. He says, because of all that I just shared with you, he said, I became a servant of the gospel. And we talk about the gospel, that, that's what we've been talking about is exactly what we need, that you can enter into confidence, you can know God, your sins can be forgiven, you have an inheritance called eternal life, all of that is true, you receive the Holy Spirit, where you find love, joy, and, and peace, and it is available to everyone. And Paul said, when I caught wind of that, when I received the gospel, there was one logical conclusion for me, I had to serve it with my whole life. So Paul says, I became a servant of the gospel. And this isn't really the point of this text, but I think this attitude and mindset, it goes to how Paul was able to live his life in prison through incredible hardship and difficulty. It wasn't just prison. It was one difficulty after another as Paul realized his highest priority in life was to serve the gospel. And he says, I can serve the gospel free. I can serve the gospel in prison. I can serve the gospel healthy. I can serve the gospel sick. I can serve the gospel thriving. I can serve the gospel poor when, when, I'm, when I'm impoverished. I can serve the gospel literally in any season. So if you ever want to know how on earth do you find purpose in life when nothing is going your way and everything's falling apart and you feel like you're stuck in this prison and you don't want to be there anymore, Paul has the answer. Realize that your purpose in life is to serve the gospel. And Paul's not asking you to like your current circumstances, but Paul is saying you, you may not like your circumstances, but there is still purpose to be found in your circumstances if you believe you are a servant of the gospel. You can serve the gospel from prison. You can serve the gospel in hardship. You can serve the gospel in difficulty. You can serve the gospel in trial. You know who it's harder to serve when you're going through those things? Happiness. When your main goal and priority in life is happiness, when you're going through things, it is harder to serve that God. Hobby, ambition, things. When prison happens, when hardship happens, when difficulty happens, when those are your number one priorities, it is harder to serve those things, it is true. But when you understand your purpose in life, that it is to serve the gospel, when you understand your purpose, you will understand your role in suffering. What would it look like if you and I considered ourselves the same? That you came in here thinking, I had one purpose, I had one reason for, for getting up every day. I thought it was this, but what if you're realizing today that one of your purposes in life, the chief purpose you have is to serve the gospel. So whatever is best for the gospel, whatever is needed for the gospel, whatever moves the gospel forward is what is most needed. I think that tomorrow morning it would change the way you view your job. That, you know, yeah, I'm going in to teach or I'm going in to lead or I'm going in to sell, I'm going, in, I'm going in to do this job, but in the back of my mind, I understand I'm really just a servant of the gospel. I think it would view the, uh, change the way you view your resources, that, man, God has given me this money, this home, this time, or whatever, and I, I've got some plans for it, but I understand my highest priority needs to be serving the gospel. How you raise your kids, how you see your suffering and hardship, it would, say, it would change the way we see 
everything, our very purpose in life. And for Paul, the gospel was everything. On that road to Damascus, when he was walking to persecute the church, and a bright light shone in his face, and God saved him out of that miry clay, in that moment, everything was changed. And he says, man, I've got to, let, I've got to give my life to this message that your sins can be forgiven that you can have eternal life, that God can be present with you through the Holy Spirit. That I'm going to give the, my life to this, making sure people know this is for everyone. And I wonder sometimes if what's happened is we've just lost our passion for the gospel. I think there are a few possibilities in our culture for why it's happened, but I think one of the big ones is that in our culture, we are just in a mode right now where we are desperate for our own righteousness. We are desperate to appear right and good and okay. So we live in a culture that feels like it has to win literally every single argument. Know every single thing. Appear to others as better. And I think we have lost our sense of humility that comes from our own sinfulness. For Paul, humility, being humble, was a core part of how he saw his service to the gospel. You notice what he said? Uh, he said, I am the least of all God's people in one of the passages I read. And then later on, he says, I am the worst of the sinners. Oh, you think you're a sinner? Paul, I'm worse. I'm, I'm the worst. I'm the actual worst, right? And this humility about himself and his own sinfulness led him to serve the gospel so well. The truth of the matter is spiritual pride, I've got the answers, I know what is right, I've heard a minute and a half of your story, let me tell you what you should do. That sort of spiritual pride is super dangerous. Jonathan Edwards uh, preached a very famous sermon one time called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And uh, if you ever want to not sleep one night, read it right before bed, right? I would recommend you just reading it. Don't, don't sit your kids down. Hey, I'm going to read to you this. Yeah, your kids won't sleep for a week, right? It, it is a really, really kind of damning sermon. But Jonathan Edwards preached a lot of other sermons outside of that. Um, and I want to share with you what he wrote. He wrote this. So the language is going to be a little bit different, but I'm going to have it on the screen for you so you can see the content. He wrote this in 1737. It might as well have been 2023, right? He wrote this in 1737. He said, the first and worst cause of errors that abound in our day and age is spiritual pride. This is the main door by which the devil comes into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of Christ. So exactly what we're talking about. Those that want to serve the gospel and move it forward. <clears throat> It is the chief inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit to darken the mind and mislead the judgment. He, he liked words, right? Pride is the main handle by, what, by which he has a hold of Christians' persons and the chief source of all the mischief that he introduces to clog and hinder the work of God. Spiritual pride is the main spring, or at least the main support of all other heirs. Until this disease is cured, medicines are applied in vain to heal all other spiritual diseases. Spiritual pride. So what does humility look like? Well, I've alluded to it a little bit from Paul's perspective. Pride looks like I have all the answers. 
I can tell you what you need to do. Just tell me your story. I have the answers. That's pride. Humility says Jesus has the answers. Who you really need is Jesus, and he will lead you through his Holy Spirit. Pride says I am the example. Be like me. Humility recognizes our sin and says don't be like me. For the love of all that is, don't be like me. Be like Jesus. Pride says I am righteous. Humility says there is no one righteous, no, not one. So we look to Jesus to be the source of our righteousness. And the Bible says that God cares so deeply, and this is so important to, I'm gonna show you this in a minute, to the furtherment of the good news of Jesus. God cares so deeply about this that he will humble us. He will. And it is not a super fun thing to experience. Paul had a story that he told about God humbling him. There is another option according to the Bible. The Bible says we can also humble ourselves. It's better, trust me. I've been through both, right? I've been through both. He, we, we can humble ourselves, and I think there are several ways we can do that. We can keep a posture of worship, that worship reminds us about God's bigness and our smallness, God's righteousness and our sinfulness. So we want to keep this, the way we talk about this all the time, we want to keep about this posture of worship that comes together as a church family and reminds ourselves of the bigness of God and the smallness of me. It humbles us. So instead, what can happen is, oh, I don't like that, that particular song or that music or whatever, so I'm not worshiping today. And that kind of feeds the pride monster, right? But that's not the point of worship. The point of worship is to feed the humility monster uh, and, and to make sure the humility monster gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And so we come in here and we just worship God for his bigness and his majesty and his glory and he becomes big and we become small. We wanna keep a posture of service to humble ourselves and serve other people. It keeps us humble. But perhaps Paul says, the greatest thing we can do to remain humble, the greatest thing we can do is to keep the gospel front and center in our lives in every way possible. The gospel is a humiliating story. Tim Keller, uh, I want to read to you. I'm not going to put this on the screen because I wanted to kind of interact with it a little bit, but Tim Keller wrote this, and I hesitated to use it. Um, Tim Keller recently passed away, but this is a Christmas quote, and I don't want to freak you guys out that Christmas is like two months away, but, um, but I wanted you to hear this because this is so good to me, what, what, what Keller writes, and he says, Christmas is about receiving presents but consider how challenging it is to receive certain kinds of gifts. Some gifts by nature make you swallow your pride. Imagine opening a present on Christmas morning from a friend and it's a dieting book. And then you take off a ribbon and a wrapper and you find another book from a different friend called Overcoming Selfishness. If you say to them, thank you so much, you are in a sense admitting, I am indeed overweight and obnoxious right? That some gifts are by their nature humbling. 
In other words, he says, some gifts are hard to receive because to do so is to admit you have flaws and weaknesses and you need help. Perhaps on some occasion you've had a friend figure out you were in financial trouble and came to you and offered you a large sum of money to get you out of your predicament. If that has ever happened to you, you probably found that to receive that gift meant swallowing your pride. Now listen to this transition. There has never been a gift offered that makes you swallow your pride more than the depths of the gift of Jesus Christ that he's given to us through the gospel. Christmas or the gospel means, listen to this, that we are so lost and so unable to save ourselves that nothing less than the death of the son of God himself could save us. This means that you and I, that we are not people that can just pull ourselves together and live a moral life. The gospel helps us to be humble. And the truth is Christianity is at its best when we're humble. Christianity thrives at its best when we're humble. Sometimes I'm just going to be straight honest with you. This is not in my notes. But sometimes, and that's this is why I get in trouble, possibly fired. But um, uh, Sometimes all this talk of like winning culture wars and going to battle and sometimes all of this, I'm like, this is not when we're at our best. When we're battling and trying to prove that we're right and, and we're going to war, that is not when Christianity is at, Christianity is at its best when we're humble and we're pointing people to Jesus. This is what Paul writes in the text we read earlier. His intent now was that through the church, through us, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. It is through humility that people come to know Jesus. The wisdom of God, the freedom of God, that we, we, we have confidence to come to him in faith. What a gift. And it happens not when the church is trying to prove itself right or win an argument or win a war or all of that stuff that we've done over the years. That, that, that's not when we're at its best. I understand why it happens. I've lived through some of it. I've been through multiple church conflicts that result in a church splitting. Uh, the church I grew up in actually no longer exists. So I, I, I get what happens when the church is like, no, we gotta win. We're in it to win it sort of thing. So I get it why it happens, but I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, we are just at our best when we are like Paul and we are humble. And we're interacting with people and we're not saying, oh, I've got the solution. Let me, let me tell you what I think you need to do or look to me as the example or I feel like I need to defeat you because you're some kind of enemy now. No, it's what happens. We're at our best when we're like Paul and we say, you know what? I am the worst of all sinners. I am the worst of all sinners. But I found Christ Jesus who has forgiven me and given me new life and giving me his Holy Spirit. And that's the only thing I have to offer you. I'm not your example. I'm not gonna tell you how to live your life. I'm not trying to defeat you for sure. But I am a, the worst of all sinners. And I found Jesus. 
And I'd like to introduce to you, you to him as well because I think he can help you. And I'm telling you that humble posture is when we're at our best. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us to be humble? Paul teaches us that humility is core to serving the gospel. Paul understood that, that he begged God to help him be humble, to help him remain humble. Because when we have a posture of war, a posture of anger, a posture of self-righteousness, we are just not at our best when we're that way. The message fails to thrive when we're that way. But when we can be humble, when we can humble ourselves and have our message be that we are the worst of sinners, but we found grace and we found a better way and we found new life and it's in Jesus. So follow him with me. Follow me as I follow him if, if that's where we need to start. But, but no, I'm following him. And may we have a posture of humility to understand that we did not save ourselves, we did not make it happen, we are not killing it. But instead, it is Christ in us that has made the difference. May the faith, the manifold wisdom of God thrive in the coming days as we humble ourselves before you. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're going to receive communion, a gift right now from God. It's a gift right now from God of, of his son. And, and this is meant to be what Tim Keller was writing about. This is meant to be a joy-filled but also humbling experience to remind us that this is what was necessary to, to help me, to, to forgive my sins, to get me the Holy Spirit, to move me forward. This is what was necessary. I couldn't do it on my own. I needed Christ. And so may we be humbled in this space as we receive communion uh, together. And you can just kind of thank God for his mercy, thank God for his grace, and then I'll come back up here in just a moment and we'll receive communion all together as a church family. God bless you guys. His body given for you. His blood poured out. God, I want to pray for me. And I want to pray for us that right now in this moment, we would receive humility. And you can just tell at work or in the community or in conversation when somebody, somebody is trying to humbly share something with you or they're trying to win or defeat or, or whatever the case may be. You, you can just tell. So I wanna pray as we leave this place in a few minutes that we will have properly fed the humility monster for a terrible way of saying it, but that we would be, we would be humble. And we would leave this place humble because the church is at its best when it's humble. Help us to be that. It is in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Hey, would you go ahead and stand? We're really glad uh, that you're here. Uh, we're going to close with one last song. And um, if you have a prayer request or prayer need, another thing our elders do is they'll be in the overflow after church. And they would love to meet with you over there and pray with you or answer any questions that you have. Um, and so you just come straight over here after church. And they would love to, 
uh, like I said, talk with you and pray with you and answer any questions you have about faith or about our church. So uh, we're really glad that you're here. We're going to continue marching through Ephesians uh, next Sunday. And let's uh, close with one last song of worship. Oh, home.